KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. The Supreme Court recently heard oral arguments about a case that could overturn Roe v. Wade and fundamentally change abortion rights in this country. We wanted to really dig into this case, so we caught up with Dr. Susan Liebel. She is a professor of political science at St. Joseph's University. This is important. Give a listen. So to start, before we dig into the case that the Supreme Court heard recently, I'd actually like to kind of set a baseline. Can you explain exactly what the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision allows and doesn't allow because I feel like everybody knows kind of in in the general term what it's about. But what exactly are the, the parameters here of what Roe versus Wade decided? I have a great question because there's Roe and there's Casey and people talk about Roe and sometimes they mean Casey, but the, the two cases actually give you the background that you need for, for understanding where we are today. So Roe was about a Texas uh, abortion law and uh, a woman who was seeking an abortion. And the question that the court was asking was, when was it against the woman's fundamental right under the 14th Amendment, which says a person can't be deprived of life, liberty or property without due process of law? There had been a case about birth control that said controlling your reproduction came out of the 14th Amendment. So Roe follows that and says, this is included as well, ending and terminating a pregnancy. But unlike uh, contraception, they recognized that ending a pregnancy was different because they found that there was a sort of balancing that had to be done between the right of the woman to control her bodily autonomy and her reproduction and the power of the state to protect potential life. And so they devised this framework, just as Blackman did, a trimester framework. And in the first trimester, they said, woman's autonomy is the strongest. She gets to make the decision. In the third trimester, the state gets to make more of the decision because by that time, the fetus is viable. The fetus could survive outside of the womb. So they used this idea of viability, when can the fetus survive outside of the womb, and this idea of um, privacy that came out of the Griswold case and a right to privacy to, to find that the state did have a legitimate interest in protecting potential human life, but all of this needs to be weighed in terms of women's autonomy to control reproduction. So that's kind of the origin story there. So then that was in 73, Roe versus Wade mm-hmm. comes down. Then in 92, am I correct, is when Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is the other uh, case you referenced, and kind of give us a, a quick primer on that. So uh, Casey comes out of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania passes some restrictions. By this time, the court has changed. I should note, you know, that in uh, Roe, it was a 7-2 decision. And those justices who voted in favor of abortion rights, many of them had been appointed by Republican presidents. The day it came out, nobody really cared. Uh, Lyndon Johnson happened to die that day. It It was not something that was attended to really until later. In 92, this case comes to the court. The court has changed substantially. And Justice O'Connor finds in favor of most regulations, but she restructures how the court should think about 
a regulation and whether it intrudes on a constitutional right. So uh, she says, I think it should be about it placing an undue burden on the woman making the decision. So she finds, for example, that a waiting period, which is one of the things that Pennsylvania was requiring, she says, that's fine. That's okay. Um, She finds having to get permission from your husband to be not okay, to be a violation of women's autonomy and women's equality. And so she says that she's not changing Roe because the, what she calls the core understanding of Roe, that at viability is the point when the state has more of an interest in protecting human life and that you're balancing these two things, the woman's autonomy and the state's interest, she, she redirects it to this undue burden test. And going forward, that has become the test. So you could argue that it's really a kind of a re- phrasing of Roe, or you could say that it's in some cases, you know, a a drastic reduction in the protection that Roe afforded. But we come to this case with that undue burden uh, standard as the one that we, the court has used in the past. So now let's dig into the arguments that the Supreme Court heard as we're talking on Friday, December 3rd this week. Uh, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Kind of give us the origin story here and what was being argued. So uh, as I mentioned, I hope uh, clearly enough in Roe, the discussion of viability when a fetus can survive outside of the womb was crucial to when it is that a woman's interests become uh, not simply the one, the interest making a decision that the state has that line. And that line was preserved in Casey. Here, and and roughly it's 23 to 24 weeks right now with the science as to when a fetus can survive outside of the womb. That's not that different than it was in 92. But one of the things O'Connor said was, if the science changes and you can be viable earlier, well, then the the states could change their laws. So Mississippi comes with a law that moves it to 15 weeks, which is before viability. Nobody argues that a fetus, a 15-year-old fetus can survive outside of the womb. And so in some ways, looking at the precedent, this should be an easy case for the Supreme Court. Viability has been the rule. It's been the rule for almost 50 years So this is a case in which it's before viability. So normally that would mean that it would be struck down. But uh, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was replaced by Justice Barrett, that shifted the court. And so there are now five or six votes um, in favor of striking down uh, Casey and Roe. And that's why this case is getting the attention that the law in uh, Dobbs coming out of Mississippi is very radical. There's no exception for rape, no exception for incest. That has always been part of the doctrines as well. So it seems to be a clear case, except that the court personnel has changed. What did you hear in the arguments? Uh, I guess it was on Wednesday of this week as we're speaking. Uh, It seemed to me as a layman, I did not listen to the arguments, but reading multiple articles about it, it's very easy to see, it seems, which way the wind's blowing on this. Uh, you're not wrong, Matt. It, I mean, it was a wild two hours. It was a, it was an uh, intense two hours. People were listening for particular words. And uh, I think that 
the oral arguments went beyond what anybody kind of thought would happen. Uh, the Mississippi lawyer started by saying that abortion haunts our country. He referred to the unborn, unborn girl fetus, uh, the kind of pain that she feels in the womb, and just said, you know, Roe was a bad decision, Casey was a bad decision, and it should be overturned because, you know, there's no fundamental right. Um, and the court's reaction from the liberal side was to be expected. Justices, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, Justice Breyer, the three liberals all spoke to the autonomy, freedom, and dignity of women and the necessity of making reproductive choices, not having the state control their bodies as something fundamental to uh, liberty and something that is, though not named in the Constitution, similar to other things like contraception or the ability to choose things for your uh, education for your children or who you marry. So that was not surprising. What was surprising from the liberals was that Breyer talked about the fact that changing the doctrine could subvert the court's legitimacy, that there hadn't been any change and implicitly, except for the members of the court. He didn't say it, but just as Sotomayor did, and she said that, you know, how are we going to survive as a court if people just think we're political? And she um, used very strong language. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception? And she pointed out that on the floor of the Mississippi legislature, in fact, um, they said, oh, there's a new justices on the Supreme Court, so we can, we can get this through, which seemed to underline that this isn't about arguments, it's about politics. Uh, the more conservative justices, some, we knew what they would say. Justice Thomas has been very interested in fetal personhood for a long time, um, and he brought that up. He, he was very, very clear. He didn't think there was a right to abortion. People thought that Justice Kavanaugh might be more moderate. That turned out not to be the case at all. Alito saw this as a bad decision that should just be overturned like Plessy v. Ferguson or any other bad decision made by the court. Uh, and as did Justice Gorsuch also signaled he would overturn. The only person who was interesting there was Justice Roberts, who um, has in the past not supported abortion rights as part of the Constitution, but he has supported what's called stare decisis, which just is fancy for saying, let the decision stand. And so in June Medical, a couple of years ago, he voted with the liberals to say, I don't believe this, but we've said it for 50 years. So therefore, we have to say this because this is about the court's legitimacy. And so what we saw Roberts doing was like trying really, really hard to say, what if we just make this about a choice and you have a choice in 15 weeks? Why don't, what if we don't strike this whole thing down? But we saw some very extreme things. The last thing I'll say, Justice Barrett surprised people by saying, I don't think that anyone has a right not to be pregnant. She basically said people have a right not to be parents and safe haven laws, which let you bring a baby to a fire station or a police station and abandon it there safely. She felt meant that abortion wasn't necessary, that people have no right not to be pregnant. They just have rights not to be parents. We're expecting a decision next summer, June-ish. Is that June, correct? Yeah. Let's assume this goes the way that 
all signs are pointing it's going to go and they overturn all this precedent and this becomes law of the land. What does that look like? How does it work? Uh, It means that the 50 states each have very different laws and very different court rulings about abortion in place. So everything reverts to them. So there are states like California and New York and Vermont and Connecticut and Hawaii and Oregon, and, and they have very, very strict abortion rights in place. So the day after a court decision, nothing happens in those states. They continue to have their access. Uh, then there are states where it's protected, like New Jersey and, and Delaware and Maryland and Iowa. And there's a bunch of states. And so there, there are good protections in place, maybe not as strong as the others. Then there are places where there is no protection or hostility. And so in those cases, some of them have laws that are what's called trigger laws, which means that as soon as the court makes a decision, their law changes or they have legislatures that have signaled that as soon as it is not law of the land, they will move to change it. And Pennsylvania will be a very interesting state because it is not one with strong legal protections. It has lots of restrictions. It has a Republican legislature in both houses and a Democratic governor. So a governor could veto, Wolf could veto things coming out. We have a governor's race in 2022 that could be impacted as well. So everything goes to the states and the, and the state laws and the state courts. I want to talk a little bit about the idea, you know, no carve out for rape or incest. Uh, and the idea that, well, if you don't want to be a parent, you just, how is there not, how do you not look at that and think about the hell that puts a woman through and just be like, well, it's only nine months. And if you don't want the baby, just, just give it to a safe hit. I mean, really? Like that is so detached from reality for me. And I am saying this as a middle-aged guy, like how in the world do you think that's okay? If someone goes through, gets raped or some sort of sexual trauma like that, and then is told, well, you know, and then have the rapist sue for custody. Like, I mean, I don't know. I mean, all these awful, awful ripple effects of this. I, I just, I have a hard time getting my head around how that, how anyone can look at that and say, you know, oh, it'll be fine. Well, Matt, you're very representative of a majority of Americans. Americans have been polled on abortion now for 50 years. And they have consistently said the same thing. They are very uncomfortable with third trimester abortions. There are circumstances that make them step back from abortion rights, but a majority of Americans take the position that you take. First, rape and incest is a protected category. People who have have no involvement in the creation of a child should not be forced to have a child. So most Americans believe that. However, a minority of Americans, and we see those minority overrepresented on the fetal on the on the supreme court believe in fetal personhood so for example we know justice thomas believes that the constitution protects persons we know well that's true but that those persons are fetuses so for example what we might think of as birth control an iud or the pill is perceived by some religious people to be 
the end of a life or the, the non-implanting is, is, is against a natural process. An emergency plan like plan B, that's an abortion. That's, that's not birth control. So we don't even have agreement over what birth control actually means. And we don't have agreement over personhood. So for some people like Thomas and increasingly like, I think like Barrett uh, and Alito and probably Gorsuch and probably Kavanaugh, Fetal personhood outweighs all of the interests that you've just outlined that a majority of Americans appear to believe in, that women, women's bodies make them unique citizens. And without protection uh, and access to reproductive services, they will not have the same control over, over their lives. Um, but, but I think... We can see that there are people there who, like the people in the Supreme Court, who who believe this, even though they're a minority, they are overrepresented on the Supreme Court. You talked about John Roberts trying to thread the needle. I, like I said, talking to you, talking to other people, things that I've read, looking at, you know, some of the transcripts of the it seems to me a slam dunk that this is going to get overturned, but is there the possibility of, you know, the summer's a long time away and there is, I mean, I don't think, I don't think there's not going to be nothing here, but is, do you think there is a chance they kind of surprise us and we do get some sort of middle grant or some kind of compromise? Well, an oral argument is supposed to be just that. It's supposed to be a place in which the justices try out various arguments on these attorneys and have them defended against. I remember after Obergefell, which is the marriage equality case years back that I was sitting in a room after oral arguments, uh, talking with some scholars and students, and everybody said, wow, that sounded bad. That didn't sound like the court was going to create uh, access to same-sex marriage for all Americans. So it, so in theory, oral arguments is just that. You can say what you want. Maybe you put things out that you don't believe because you want to hear how the lawyers answer them. You want to make your argument better. And perhaps you want to be convinced by somebody else. Like in theory, that's the way it is. It's very hard to have listened to the two hours and to come away thinking that that's where we are. What could Roberts do? Well, if he were to be able to peel away one conservative off of the strong position, that radical position that Barrett and Thomas and Alito have laid out, then he could, if he voted with the majority, be the person to write the opinion, the majority opinion, and he could write it in a more narrow way. Then there would be concurrences that would be more radical. It's very hard to imagine with a 6-3 how that happens. He's lost all of his power in a 5-4 court. He could make the decision and then he could control the majority opinion. And with Barrett on the court, that's no longer the case. And and please, if I'm comparing apples to oranges, tell me. But we there was the Texas abortion law. This was the case yes. that everybody was looking at and thought Roe is in real danger here with the makeup of the court. And then a few months ago, that Texas abortion law that basically put bounties out on people who sought an abortion or helped somebody get an abortion. That's completely separate from this, but 
that the fact that the, the court didn't step in and found some procedural reason why, well, what do you want us to do? Our hands are tied. I mean, that kind of that to me is kind of the gateway that tells you where we're going. Am I crazy? No, you're not. A lot of court wa- watchers thought that the fact that the court didn't stay SB8, which makes abortions after six weeks, which most women don't know they're pregnant at six weeks, uh, illegal in Texas. And as you say, puts out a $10,000 bounty for anyone who reveals somebody who assisted, who aided in abetting in the um, abortion. So not directed at the pregnant woman, but perhaps at the person who drove her there or the doctor who performed the procedure, or perhaps even a religious uh, leader who counseled. So it was very strange that SB8 was not stayed, that it wasn't put on pause because 50 years of precedent would have made it a problem. One of the issues had been that the Texas law was written, as Justice Kagan said, by quote unquote, some geniuses who figured out that they could outsmart the courts because you couldn't sue, and under Roe, under Casey, you just sue somebody in the state government. In Texas, because the law is aimed at these other people, and the bounty system, it means that you don't have anyone to sue. And so it was a very strange procedural case. So that was part of its problem. But the court didn't stay it. You're right. And that was a strange signal that there weren't votes to, to at least put it on hold. There have been people who have suggested that behind the scenes, there is some horse trading going on between these two people two cases. Like I, I don't have that kind of insight, but some of the court watchers have said that Kagan was very, very quiet on Wednesday. That is very unlike her. She was very, very forward on SB8. Some people have suggested that Sotomayor would, and she were tag teaming. Sotomayor took this case. She took the other case. But it is possible that what's being negotiated is these two laws together and the justices are trying to influence each other. But it is, I, I think, most likely that what has happened is that there are six votes that say that this is not a fundamental right. This is not an important constitutional freedom. And we define freedom in our own ways. And uh, over time, this is one where it looks like at least six, five justices and maybe six just don't believe that this includes this kind of freedom. I honestly have no idea. Once again, assuming this goes the way we think it's going to go and Roe is overturned and we have this fundamental change. I don't know. I, I think it's impossible to anticipate the ripple effects in multiple directions because uh, number one, most importantly, we will start to hear awful horror stories of women who, because uh, I think one of the things that people need to keep in mind is this will not stop abortion. This will stop safe abortion in places. People are not going to, women are not going to stop getting abortions. And we're going to hear a lot of uh, awfulness of women who die or go to these extreme measures to, to try to prevent uh, or terminate a pregnancy. But it's it, it will fundamentally shake a lot of ground on a lot of fronts, you know, political, social. And I don't think we know what that's going to look like. 
No, we don't. Uh, we have a very polarized country and we have polarized laws, as you and I've discussed before, on guns and access to guns and who can use guns and what type. We also have very polarized laws in terms of abortion. So what we're looking at is pockets of the country that will have strong protections and access. Um, we will have places where there will be no access. Uh, some of them will be close to a state where you could drive across state lines and acquire a legal abortion. Others will be in places where that may require driving hundreds and hundreds of miles. This will disproportionately affect poor women. It will disproportionately affect young women. And we will see a radical shift. Now, the most optimistic version of me says that there uh, is surgical abortion. There is also chemical abortion increasingly available. It is hard to educate people to how to use uh, medical abortion or chemical abortion be because you have to know earlier, you have to know what to order. You know, have need to know that you need to speak to a doctor first. You need to be more in touch with your own body and what has happened. Um, that would be a massive re-education project. It would be a real shift. Uh, it could be made illegal in some states, but but that is a possible avenue if you're looking to be optimistic here. Uh, I But I think that overall, what you say is the case. We will have very, very different access across the country, and we could also see changes. Were anything to be mentioned about fetal personhood in these decisions, also to access to some things that some people consider to be birth control, but that could also be regulated at the state level. And to that point, that was kind of my next question. Uh, it's not that far a jump for people to start beating the drums that there shouldn't be birth control or stuff like that. And these, it, it, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's kind of the same strain of thinking. Uh, you're not wrong. So the first case that happens is a Connecticut law, which says that married people can't pur purchase birth control. And it goes to the Supreme Court. And the court doesn't quite know how to articulate that this can't be the case, that this is objectionable. And so, and there's a couple of ways they could do it. One is through the 14th Amendment that says you can't deprive a person of life, liberty, or property. And you could read into the word liberty the right to use birth control, decide how many kids you're going to have. Uh, another way to do it would be to use an amendment that nobody really looks at, which is the Ninth Amendment. And it says that the enumeration of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. That was written by James Madison. There was a justice in the birth control case who said, we don't look at this but let's say, how about we just read the text of the Constitution and put it there? When the court took the option of uh, naming privacy, a word that doesn't apply uh, appear in the Constitution, and say, look, there is, there's a penumbra, there's this giant shadow of privacy, and we can find it in the First Amendment, we can find it in the Third Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, and the Ninth Amendment. And together, it says that what happens at home in your bedroom is your business. And and that privacy doctrine was all about birth control. That was the first step. And that is what Roe built upon. So you're not wrong that if you pull this thread, and this was discussed in oral arguments, are you also saying states could make birth control illegal? Are you also saying that states could make 
marriage between people of the same uh, gender identity illegal again. All of those cases rely on this notion of privacy or liberty that isn't enumerated, isn't named explicitly in the Constitution. And we get from these terms, life, liberty, and what is liberty? And so for Sotomayor, liberty is being able to decide if you have a child or not. And for Gorsuch, it doesn't include that at all. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. <laughs> <laughs>